Okay, well, welcome. We're going to start a new book tonight, a new series in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, the Old Testament. And uh, we want to uh, really understand what this book is about. It's the ninth book in the Old Testament, right past uh, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. And uh, we want to do kind of an introduction tonight, and then we'll uh, begin to go through uh, 1 Samuel chapter by chapter. But let's open in a word of prayer as we begin our study tonight. Father, we thank you, and we're excited that we can come into this uh, study of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And uh, as we look at the details of this book over the next several months, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, through your spirit, through your power, uh, transform our own hearts and our own lives and apply the truths that we will learn together as we uh, study your precious word. Lord, we ask for your spirit's enablement, and uh, we just look forward to all that we're going to learn together as the body of Christ. We thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, First and Second Samuel uh, are basically one book in the Hebrew text, in the Hebrew manuscript. They're not separated. Uh, 1 Samuel deals closely with the death of Saul. And 2 Samuel takes up where David's reign begins. Uh, It's grouped in the Hebrew text with the books of Joshua, Judges, and Kings. And so they're they're one book in the Hebrew manuscript. The division could have been related to either the content of it, of the books, or the length of it be kind of hard to carry around both of these books in one giant scroll. It was either made by a translator or a priest or something. But as to the content, the first book deals closely with, as I said, the death of Saul. And the second takes up where David's reign begins. It's possible that two smaller rolls of manuscript were easier to manage than one giant continuous scroll. So the book of of Samuel, the books of Samuel are a part of a larger group of books. And these books basically trace the history of Israel from the conquest of Palestine to the captivity in Babylon. And the history begins with Joshua and Judges and concludes with First and Second Kings. So if you're reading through the Old Testament, it kind of gives you an idea of where you're at. The books of Samuel and Kings were originally grouped together, and they were called the Book of Reigns. Reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S. The books of Samuel cover approximately 100 years of Israel's history. And one of its most important centuries. They take Israel from a loose kind of group of tribes to a settled monarchy under David. The content could be you might say loosely arranged around three personalities. If you were to draw out three people in these, in the, the books of First and Second Samuel, they would be these: Samuel, Saul, and David. Uh, the title of the book in in the Hebrew canon, canon is Samuel, just simply Samuel, because remember it's just one book, and it's probably named that because Samuel is actually the the leading character in the early chapters, and uh, he was tied in with the ministry. Uh, of Saul and David, both of whom are more prominent uh, characters. Uh, When it was written, 
uh, or who wrote it, excuse me, we don't know. Uh, the Jewish tradition says Samuel wrote it, but we don't know that. Uh, the date is unclear as well. Uh, we don't know the author of uh, any other uh, of the historical books. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew historians were often uh, more compilers. They put together these things than the authors. And they made use of existing documents to do this. Uh, just as John selected and arranged material out of the ministry and teaching of Christ in order that the, the, the people might come to know him, so the historian basically edited and arranged the material of the books of Samuel to show how God worked through all kinds of people, all kinds of circumstances, to ultimately bring David to the throne. Uh, the duplications that appear and the different styles that occur are explained by the, the various sources that the historian who compiled these put are used. Uh, although the historian probably used materials preserved by the prophets Samuel, Nathan, Gad, um, and, and the books did not take their final shape until the 6th century B.C. as the people were coming back from captivity. So it kind of gives you a little background on these books. Uh, part of the people were still in Babylon and some were scattered elsewhere. Well, who is this character Samuel? Who is he? Uh, he's mentioned in Jeremiah 15.1, Psalm 99.6. His, his name means asked of God or named of God. He is both a prophet and a judge. Uh, the New Testament refers to him with honor in Acts chapter 3, 24, uh, Acts 13, 20, Hebrews eleven thirty-two. He's described as the first of the prophets. And he's connecting, he's kind of the, the link, you might say, between the, the period of the judges and the period of the kings. Uh, truly a, a remarkable man, to say the least. Well, what's the background and setting of this book? Let's, let's take a, just a few moments to go over that because it's important to keep things in context. Uh, remember, in this time in Israel, there was no temple, there was no capital, there was no king. Um, although David's family had survived, you know, it was a time when the, the lessons of Israel's history would be a source of encouragement, of comfort, and of promise. They were words of hope that the God who had been in David's life would continue to be in their lives. So in the book of Judges, you find that God used little people. <laughs> little people. Many of whom had some faults or defects. Uh, their stories were and are a great encouragement to those of us today who are little people. However, in First and Second Samuel, we meet some really outstanding individuals. People like Hannah, Eli, Samuel, Saul, Jonathan, David. These are some of the characters we're going to run into as we go through the study of this book. We will become acquainted with each of them as we go through. And uh, the first book of Samuel opens up with the cry of a godly woman. While the people are crying for a king, Hannah is crying for a child. Uh, and God builds the throne on a woman's cry. That's kind of interesting. When a woman takes her exalted place, you know what? God builds upon that. 
God builds her a throne. And so we, we, we're going to run into Eli, who's the high priest. And she runs into Hannah at the, at the place of worship. And she thinks Hannah is drunk as she's praying before the Lord, before the tabernacle at Shiloh. And when he discovers her true anxiety for a child, he actually blesses her. He, she's barren, and she's asking for a child. And eventually Samuel's born to Hannah, and she brings him to Eli to fulfill her vow to give him to the Lord, to give her child to the Lord, to give little Samuel back to God. And uh, as the book of 1 Samuel opens up, it is a period of the judges in Israel. Uh, the, the period here of the patriarchs is in the past. That's over. Where Israel was guided by men like Joseph and Jacob and so forth. And now it is earlier than the time of the kings, Saul and David, and Solomon, and then on from there. So it's, it's that little period in between when there were judges in Israel such as Barak and Deborah and Gideon and Samson. It's that time. It's truly a time of turmoil in Israel's history. It's a time of, you might say, confusion. It's a time of spiritual degeneracy. Everything from the corrupted priesthood to to the people's moral decay is going on. It's a time when there's moral desecration in the place of worship. It's really a sad and tragic hour in Israel's history. And it was a day that was perhaps, you might consider it a parallel to our day today, the society in which we live in, but even worse, if you can believe that. You had the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. They were gaining ground. The priesthood that was supposed to lead the people of God had become totally corrupt. It was filled with vile, sinful men in the priesthood. Even in the temple itself, if you can believe this, there were moral scandals so that the children of the high priest himself were carrying out sexual orgies at the foot of the temple steps with known prostitutes whom they invited there. It was really a a wretched time, a time of gross evil, a time when not only was the leadership gone, but the priesthood had even abandoned its calling. The nation was weak. The nation was literally impotent. And the nation additionally had a limited prophetic voice. There weren't great preachers. There weren't great prophets during this time. It was a time when there was a slide away from that divine standard that God had once established. And the one great hero that they had is dead. And his name is Samson. But he's he's gone and the country is divided and the country is leaderless. And so the the Philistines, their enemies are encroaching more and more and they're gaining greater strength. The nation is weak. The nation is impotent. And at first, Samuel 3.1 says that there was... Really, no prophetic voice that was being heard whatsoever in the nation. So, you know, to give me a perspective, it's a very dire time in the history of Israel. And it was a time for God to bring along a man who could lead the people back to himself. 
And that man was none other than the man Samuel. And in order to bear Samuel, God chose a very special lady. If you're familiar at all with the days of the judges, then you know that it's, it's one bad person after another when you read through that book. Romans chapter 3 tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. And as you read through the book of Judges, if you don't believe me, go ahead and do that. That's your homework assignment. Read through the book of Judges. And you're thinking, boy, it can't get any worse than this. And you turn the page and it gets, gets worse. It gets worse and worse and worse. Now, remember, God didn't create the world with nations originally. He created what? Two individuals. He created Adam and Eve. And from Adam and Eve came cities and populations. And when sin entered into the world, sin reigned in the world as we know it. Death, destruction. Ultimately, God had to judge the earth with the flood. And he starts all over again with one family. Wipes everybody out and says, okay, Noah and his family are the only ones who are going to survive. And then in Genesis chapter 11, God divides the earth. He divided it geographically, and he divided it linguistically. He creates, it says, nations out of the earth, and these nations were designed to check, really, the evil on each other. It was really by the grace of God that we have nations today. See, it's not an issue of one righteous nation and the unrighteous nations. It's not... One great nation pitted against all the unrighteous nations. The fact is, they were all unrighteous during this time. And that's what the Bible says. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so since the Tower of Babel, God is familiar with unrighteous nations who are basically at war with one another and they fight against each other. And believe it or not, this is, like I said, a form of God's grace. Because it keeps one wicked nation in check by another wicked nation. It's kind of like the arms treaty today that we have among nations. You know, boy, it'd be nice to get rid of all weapons, but you can't do that. And so you have to build up your stockpile because through strength, that's power. And that shows authority. And that gives you ultimately respect by other nations who would want to do you harm. And so God promised land to Israel and to Abraham, but Abraham had to leave the land until the people there were so wicked that God would just wipe them out. And city by city, you see this in the Old Testament. You see places like Sodom and Gomorrah, who reached the point of God's judgment, and he wipes them out. Now, it took 400 more years of paganism 400 more years of idol worship. And then 400 years later, Moses brought the people out of Egypt back to the promised land. So they've been through a dark time, a dark history. They crossed the Jordan River, they conquered it. And beginning in Judges, you think that this is going to get better. Here you have God's people and God's land. Joshua is, Joshua is their leader after Moses died. He yields to Caleb, godly leader. And Judges 1 begins with Caleb and Othniel. 
and you don't even get to the end of Judges chapter 1 when you're reading through this, and you realize that there's not a, there's not a righteous nation here. Israel is not a righteous nation. Because what do they do? They start compromising the law. They start spiraling out of control into sin. And it gets worse and worse and worse. To the point where Israel is worse than all the nations that it had replaced. If you can believe that. They were the unrighteous nation who had exceeded the sin of those before them. They were worse than the ones they had replaced. That's, that's hard to believe. Instead of learning righteousness from Israel, they, they, they learn how God judges sin during the days of Judges. In other words, God raised up Israel to be a light of, of God's righteousness in a wicked land. But rather than take that mantle and run with it, they fell into the sin, and they even got worse than the nations that they were supposed to be a light to. <laughs> they were involved in things like child sacrifice, idol worship, prostitution. It says they were murdering each other. They lied, deception, corruption, exploited, exploitation. There was theft going on, stealing. I mean, everything that you can imagine under the sun. And the last line in the book of Judges said that they did this because, you know why? They wanted a king. Because they thought somehow in their warped mentality that a king would suppress all this evil. Just like all the other nations have a king. We want a king too. But they had no standard for right or wrong. Other than the scriptures. And they didn't care about the scriptures at this time in history. And so they thought, you know what? The scriptures aren't going to save us, but you know, if we had a king with an iron fist, he could bring them the law. And at the end of Judges, you have the small little book of Ruth. And it's a total contrast to the book of Judges. But the moral of Ruth, at the end, you see a king is going to come. Somebody from the family of Ruth, King David, leads us right into 1 Samuel. And so that, that, that book of Ruth leads us right into 1 Samuel. When you start 1 Samuel, you have to keep two facts in mind. So as we go through the study, keep these two things in the, the forefront of your, your, your mind. First of all, Israel is really bad. They're wicked. And nothing good should ever happen except judgment from God. That's what's expected. And then secondly, God is going to bring them a king from the line of David. So it's kind of bad news, good news in a way. And so 1 Samuel shows us how those two facts actually come together. They meld together. If you saw how God worked through some Moabite woman, then we shouldn't be surprised that in 1 Samuel, he begins working with another woman. Worked through Ruth, now he's working through Hannah. So let's read... First uh, Samuel, chapter one, says there was a, a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, pretty interesting name, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf. An Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, 
And the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of excuse me, out of great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. And they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew, his, knew Hannah his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For they have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah in all his house went the Lord the yearly sacrifice, and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord of Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, 
As you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Interesting chapter. This is the beginning of the book of First Samuel. First Chronicles tells us that Elkanah was a Levite as well as a Ephraimite. So he was intermarried, the offspring of an, of an intermarriage. Because there was Levites living in Ephraim. That was the most powerful tribe. And nobody wants a priest around during the time of the judges. Why? Because there was evil. Evil going on everywhere. And, you know, when there's a presence of evil, people don't like religious leaders around. And so they, he came from a very powerful family, you might say. Uh, Ramathane is a town about five miles north there in verse 1 of Jerusalem. It's also called Ramah. Hannah and, and, and Panina, these are the two wives of Elkanah. And you might say, well, you know, what about this? I mean, is this teaching polygamy? Is this saying it's okay to have two wives? No, it's not. Polygamy was never God's intention for mankind. He tolerated it. But in every instance, when you find polygamy in the Bible, every time, it always creates problems. It creates domestic problems. And so don't, don't let this cause you to, you know, hear God is endorsing polygamy. No, he's not. You know, yes, Elkanah had two wives, but everybody did for the most part. It's not God's design, but in that culture, I mean, David had multiple wives. So, I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's something that occurred, and it never worked out. Uh, matter of fact, in, in Genesis chapter 4, you see this wicked man, his first recorded polygamist was Lemech. That's the first time it ever happened. And so Hannah was the first wife of Elkanah. So don't let that get you, you know, stumble. Um, it's wrong. It's not God's design, but it happened just like sin happens in our society today. Sometimes God is gracious in his response to that. His judgment is an instant. So Hannah was the first wife and she couldn't bear any children. She was barren. Now, when you think of the culture in which they lived, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why he went out and married again. Because back then, you know, they didn't have Social Security. They didn't have governments that cared for you. Basically, your family cared for you. And if you couldn't have any children, you know, if you were getting older, and, and he was, there was going to be some issues. Because there would be nobody to take care of you. Because your family took care of you. Your children were obligated to care for you as an older parent. You know, they didn't have nursing homes and convalescent homes where you can lock them away there and let somebody else care for them. That's not how the society operated. The children would take care of him. And so Hannah had this issue. She couldn't have children. And it says that this man, Elkanah, went up yearly in verse 3. Every year, Elkanah would attend the three mandatory feasts of Israel at the central sanctuary. That's where they would go. It was just part of their religious practice. And Eli was mentioned here, and he's the high priest at Shiloh, 20 miles north of Jerusalem. Shiloh was the site of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. That's where those things were. Now, it's interesting, some background on the priesthood. 
you can't be a priest before the age of 25 years of age, and you can't be a priest after the age of 50 years. So you have a window there of 25 years where you can serve as a priest. Verse 5 tells us that the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah's barrenness was not really her issue. It was God's issue. It says that it was due to God's sovereign power and providence that she did not was not allowed to have children. So God, for his purposes, sometimes does things in our lives that we question. But in the ultimate plan of God, it makes perfect sense. And then you have Benina, the rival, because Hannah couldn't have children. Elkanah went out and married another lady, and boy, she was very fertile, and she had lots of children. She was kind of the person who would flaunt her fertility in the face of Hannah. Look at my children. Oh, you poor, you know, you you can't even have one child. Look at how many I have. And so this drives Hannah to distress. It makes her heart sad. I mean, she, it just wears her down over years of seeing Panina have child after child after child, and she's trying, and it, nothing, nothing. And for a woman in that society, and even in our society today, it's kind of a shameful thing. It's looked upon as, well, what's wrong with you? But remember, this was God's providence. And so in verse 11, it mentions that she made a pledge. And this pledge essentially said, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you, that he may serve you all the days of his life. The elements of this, this promise, this vow, are very uh, similar to, if you read in Numbers chapter 6, there's what they call the Nazarite vow. And it's very similar to that. And so she wanted a child so bad that she was willing even to give that child back to God. And so she ends up in the place of worship, And in verse 13, she's praying, her mouth is moving, she's distressed beyond belief because of the abuse, emotional abuse of Panina, and uh, she's just stressed out. And she's praying, and her mouth, her lips are moving, but there's nothing coming out of her mouth. There's no words coming out. And so the high priest assumed that she was drunk. Oh, poor Hannah. Boy, Panina's really driven her to the bottle. Look at her, she can't even talk. She's just blubbering over here in the corner. And she prayed inaudibly. And that wasn't something that was commonplace in Israel. When they prayed, they, they mouthed words. They put words to their prayers. And so Eli just assumed that this poor woman was, was drunk. And then you see there in verse 20, you see Samuel. And this literally, this name means the name of God. But it's pronounced in such a way as to mean heard of God. That is, the child was an answer to her prayers. And so when you, you stop and you, you look at these, these things, you, know, you, you see clearly what's going on. And so she makes this vow, and God answers the prayer. And so time goes on. She has Samuel. She has the son. And as a result, what happens? She takes Samuel back to the temple after she's weaned the child. So she spent some child. And if you're a mother, you can imagine how difficult this would be. This is your only child. She doesn't have any other children. But she's willing to sacrifice her son, give him back to the Lord because of her vow. That's how important keeping vows are. And it says here in the end that um, after he was weaned, when she took him back, that the boy... Samuel assisted Eli, the high priest, by performing services in and around the temple, or the complex there, the tabernacle at Shiloh. 
So it is something that's important that she kept her vow. So as you look at the book of Samuel through the eyes of, of people desperate for hope, there are basically several ideas here about God that come out. I'm going to close with this. First of all, God overrules in human affairs. God overrules in human affairs, both great and small, to accomplish his purpose. And that encompasses allowing a lady to be barren and not have children until it's the appointed time. It allows a a priest to have these wicked sons involved in the, the, the priesthood. And all that is under the sovereignty of God. It's not that God embraces sin or endorses sin. He doesn't. But sometimes he allows it under his sovereign hand. So God overrules in human affairs, both great and small, to accomplish his purpose. That should help us sleep at night. Secondly, God always acts in the best interest of his people, whether he blesses, judges, or teaches them. He always acts in the best interest. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it as a human being. Sometimes you question God, but that's not our place. He always acts in the best interest of his people. Thirdly, God always calls appropriate leaders for his work and uses them to move his plan along. At the appointed time, who was born? Samuel was born. Why wasn't Samuel born before? So Hannah didn't have to go through all this distress and all this emotional abuse by Penina. Well, that's not God's plan. God had a purpose. God had a plan here. And God, fourthly, is present with his people. He never abandons them. Remember, this is the time of Israel where they just thought, oh, God wrote us off. They were involved in all kinds of pagan worship and everything. They had no time for God. But God still had time for them. God was still in control. God never abandons us. He's always present. You know, if you're a believer here tonight and you've trusted Christ, don't ever believe the lie that somehow you can do something to void that relationship. Don't ever think that you could do something. If you're truly saved here tonight, that you could get to a point where God would say, you know what, I'm revoking your salvation. That will never happen. That's why I believe, we believe in, in the perseverance of the saints, that the saints will persevere. And it's not based upon our performance, it's based upon God's promise. And then fifthly, God is a righteous God, and he expects his children to reflect his character. We're going to see this as we get into the story with Eli and his two sons. They weren't reflecting God's character. And also, the last thing here, God is at work in the most minute details of history, working out his purpose for his children. See, these are are ancient books reflecting even more ancient sources. But the God whose activity is being reported is the God who works in you today, and he works out his plan through the details of your life, of my life, just like he worked through the, the details of Hannah's life. And so that's a very, it's a very important thing that we need to re- remind ourselves. And when we look at Hannah's prayer here, how she prayed before the Lord, I mean, her prayer life, it really expanded her presence. I mean, here she was, you know, basically just going through uh, the motions. She was depressed. Everything was going wrong. She was being abused. And yet, rather than just stay there, she prayed. She went to God. And it really gave her a new sense of presence. And as you read through the the first chapter, you see that she was no longer depressed. Something happened. God did something in her heart. It also expanded her desires. She wanted that child, but 
She didn't want him just solely for herself anymore. She wanted him so that he could serve the Lord. And that was her promise to the Lord. And you can only imagine the influence that was expressed when that prayer was answered. I mean, when Samuel was born, I mean, there was influence for years to come because of that one individual. So that's the beginning of our our study through 1 Samuel. And I pray that God will bless our time in His Word tonight. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You gave us this book. Uh, these books, actually. And, and we thank You for the godly example of Hannah as she deals with trials in her life. And next week, as we look at her prayer, I pray that we would come to understand more about this dear woman of God and how she trusted You, even in dire times even in times of depression, that somehow that you uh, used this trial in her life to draw her into your presence and to make her reflect more of your righteousness. And we thank you that you're still in that business today, that you desire your very best for us as we live this day in this sin-filled, sin-stained world, in this fleshly body each day. I pray that we would commit ourselves to live for you fully and reflect the righteousness of Christ, your Son. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.